for us to really address climate change, the bulk of our carbon emissions are transitioning to electric vehicles. That's really the point of where we're going to make the ability to address climate change for future generations. And society as a whole is going to an all-electric future. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome to Smart Energy Voices. Today, I'm joined by Rob Threlkeld, who's Global Manager of Sustainable Energy, Supply, and Reliability at General Motors. Rob's also a member of our advisory board at Smart Energy Decisions. He also has the the distinction of being the first returning guest on Smart Energy Voices. Rob, it's great to have you here with me today. Thanks, John. It's great to be back, actually. Yeah. Before we get started with the the meat of the conversation, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your current role at GM. Yeah, happy to. So currently at GM, and I've been doing this a little over two years now, is leading the, the team that actually does all of our energy procurement for North America. And that includes gas, water, sewer, energy performance contracts, leads a lot of our policy efforts. So I think that'll be some of the conversation we get into today as we, we think about how and how the space is going to morph as quickly as it is doing and, and lead in our renewable energy efforts. So I lead that component for North America and the dotted line support our international operations as well. So you're busy. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit of a, <laughs> especially on a day like today, you know, you've got the, the cold wave that's hitting the Midwest, obviously. And MISO did put out a, a grid alert, nothing more than that, just to put everyone on notice. So it's, those are the types of things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. Speaking of being busy, GM has been busy. I mean, this has been an incredible start to the year at the January Consumer Electronics Show. There were some major announcements by GM about your vision for a zero carbon future, and it included expansion of EV models, a $27 billion investment in both EVs and autonomous vehicles, half of the GM product development teams going over to EVs and autonomous vehicles. There was new battery technology discussed. Give us a take from a corporate perspective about what's going on with, with this vision for a zero carbon future. Well, this actually aligns with, you know, a few years back when we, we announced our, our vision, which is simplistic, but in a lot of ways, powerful around zero crashes, zero emissions and zero congestion. I mean, and that really was kind of the rallying effort of us starting to think about how do we really want to transform our company? So as you fast forward, you know, you had the Bolt launch, had other announcements around electrification. You know, earlier last year, you had the Cadillac Lyric, you had the Hummer announcements. And so really, it's just a culmination of building upon all the great work that this company is doing and seeing the vision being all electric and really accelerating it because timing is now. I mean, really, when you think about, as you alluded to, some of the other announcements that I know we're going to talk about from around carbon neutrality. So it's really accelerating those efforts, putting on an emphasis and focus and building off the strong foundation that GM has had really in electric vehicles. Going back decades, you know, what we've done from, you know, the EV1 to the the Volt launch and understanding the battery technology that goes into that and, and the, what's required to really continue driving down those costs. Because in the end, it's, it's about technology driving down the costs and implementing and ultimately drive towards an all-electric future that is purely EVs or other components of fuel cells, which GM's involved as well. Yeah. For me, it's the breadth of the commitment that really was impressive. I mean, it's 30 new models. It's essentially eliminating internal combustion engines by 2035. And that's not that far down the road. And 50% of the product development team going over to EVs and autonomous vehicles. What do you think prompted the decision at this time to really go all in on EVs and autonomous vehicles? It's just a continuation of the efforts that we have. It's just at an accelerated pace that is moving things forward. As you said, 2035 is not that far off. It's really, it's 14 years. And if you look at our renewable energy commitments, 2030 in the US, that's nine years away. And so it's really saying, what do we need to do as a company to really start to move this sector in a way that 
envisions around the zero crashes, zero emissions, and, and zero congestion future, and rallying the employees around that. I think that's the other component that folks, people don't realize is there's a lot of passion within this company from leadership all the way down to see this transition occurred at an accelerated pace. I mean, you can just see it in the internal message boards and the excitement from the employees as we as we look at this and make additional and, and further announcements, just like the Navistar announcement on the fuel cells already this year as well. I mean, it's just that continuing build and enthusiasm, which has really got the passion of the employees really to drive this effort in a space that takes commitment of, of GM leadership and, and the board, the $27 billion to really start to, to activate that. That's the part that you're seeing. You're seeing the board recognize the contributions that the employees have all the way down to the production employees and the assembly operations are going to be building some of these great announcements or vehicles. I mean, just if you think about what took place in the last 12 months, I mean, we had Factory Zero, which is going to be the first all-electric auto assembly plant. And you've got the Magellan Op, which is really the Altium battery plant, uh, followed not too far down the road by Spring Hill. And now Cami going to be building the Bright Drop brand. And so it's just continuing that transition and acceleration and excitement that builds on the decades of experience that GM has in this space and now really putting a stake in the ground to say, we're, gonna, we're committed to it, we're going to do it. Right. So you've had all the pieces coming together over time. And this was now a, really a statement that yeah. says, we're ready, we're all in, internal combustion yep. engines are gone by 2035, and here's how we're going to do it. You mentioned the battery technology, and, and I'm interested in giving you an, an opportunity to maybe just talk or reflect a little bit about that, because I think the technology is unique to GM, and the, the battery you're developing will kind of double the uh, energy intensity that it delivers at 60% lower costs by the middle of the decade. Can you tell us a little bit about the battery technology that you're developing at GM? Yeah, I think that's one of the unique things that GM has done is to really develop our kind of in-house technology and leveraging our supply chain like LG and the relationship, which has been a long-term relationship. And it ultimately is cost. For us to get to an all-electric future, we've got to drive down the battery costs. And for us to be able to do that, it is going back to kind of my earlier conversation, leveraging the, the experience and over the decades of looking at electrification and then developing a technology that continues down that cost curve. For us to be competitive, this electric vehicles all have to be competitive, but they have to be competitive in a way that is modular too. So if you got to think about from small vehicle to large SUV, how are you going to create technology that has the ability to basically, as the Ultium technology is, it's modular and allows us to build a number of vehicles off that platform. And that really drives scale, which drives down cost, which enables us to meet the margins that we're looking at and ultimately the, the cost points that the customers are going to have at the various different entry points of our, of our products. Yeah, I think it's a really important part of the strategy that hasn't received a tremendous amount of coverage because obviously the battery component is the most important component in an EV and you're setting yourself up to really be able to control your own, your own destiny with this unique technology. So you know, it's the development of the technology, it's the application of the technology, and then it's thinking about it from a holistic manner of the long-term needs of that technology and, and how do we make minor repairs to battery cells? How do we think about the battery, as you noted, the battery technology, the wireless technology that allows us to really monitor what the battery is doing down to the cell levels, which is important for us to be able to get that feedback in order to keep that customer happy with the you know, overall vehicle itself because you're getting rid of the internal combustion engine and the transmission and all that. You're replacing it with the battery where the only thing really making the car go forward outside the electric motor is the battery. You got to have juice to move it forward. So the customer experience is how well that battery charges as well as propels the vehicle forward. And so developing an in-house technology, I think, and looking at it through the lens of the decades that GM has is really looking at it in a way that we're going to win the customer for life. And that kind of gets back to some of our earlier conversations that excite me, the employees to really drive this effort forward at the scale that we're now really moving from an industry perspective. That's super. Well, congratulations on those announcements. And we'll be looking forward with interest as, as to how things evolve. Your announcements happen in a context of this broader movement, which it seems like EVs are everywhere. I mean, you've got new companies like Fisker with trucks, Arrival, and Nicola, and Canoe, and Lordstown Motors, and Proterra, and Faraday, and Lucid. It, it seems like every other day, there's another brand emerging and announcing their place in the EV future. What's what's your take on on kind of why at this point, there's so much activity and new product entry into the EV space? 
Yeah, a lot of it is the price points. I mean, the battery cell technology is, is maturing around the lithium ion structure. And it just depends on how and what each company looks at it from a, and how that structure comes together. But the price points are coming down. I mean, it's in a lot of ways, it's similar to how renewables were 10 years ago. I mean, solar and wind, there really wasn't a lot of corporate offtake, except for the few of us that were in this space. And most of it was on-site, not so much off-site procurement because the mechanisms weren't really in place to do that. And so fast forward to today, how fast renewables are becoming to an adoption standpoint, you're really getting to that scale on the electricity or electric battery storage side. But in a lot of ways, if you take it back a century, when you went from the horse and buggy to the internal combustion engine, you had how many different car companies at that point in time that you know were building that type of technology and whether they were successful or not. You're kind of seeing that similarly right now. I mean, which is a great thing about the world is that you've got other players. It keeps electrification in the mainstream and that mind shift that has to happen. If it was just one company, everybody would kind of be speculative of, well, is that company really the one path? But the fact that you've got multitude of companies, obviously GM wants to lead in this space and we're going big into it, but it keeps it out there and, and keeps everybody really on their toes to making sure that they're driving a technology that the customer and consumer is going to want. Well, it's the the scope of the commitment that you're making is clearly what's going to be necessary to retain position of industry leadership. And it's as an industry observer, it's just incredible fun for us to watch and kind of be be a part of. Okay, so there's this big EV push, companies putting a stake in the ground. That wasn't enough. Like three weeks later, you announced GM's commitment to carbon neutrality by 2040 which really reflects on your operations and your supply chain. Tell us a little bit about your commitment to carbon neutrality and achieving that goal by 2040. Yeah, no, that goes back to kind of our, what I would say, our kind of decades movement into the space of, of renewables. You're looking at energy efficiency, doing things that we've always been doing around our manufacturing space. I think one of the unique things that has allowed us to kind of look at this in the lens that we're doing and then ultimately accelerating it I think I made some comments to this before, but we do have delegation of authority from our purchasing team. So my team does is delegated to all that energy procurement and working with the energy efficiency team. So I think that firsthand knowledge of really that engagement, and we were engaging utilities in unique things decades before. And so talking about rate design, talking about how do we accelerate some of the transition, or in some cases, butting heads, you know, if we viewed that the utilities weren't moving in spaces that they were. So it's really kind of building off a lot of that, I would say, in-depth experience as we've kind of moved down that path. The big thing that really started to, you know, that had to happen was the electric vehicle announcement and our all-in commitment to really do that. Because if you think about carbon neutrality, you think about renewables, you think about zero emissions as part of zero, zero, zero the grid has to transform and we got to get rid of internal combustion engines and replace it with electric vehicles. And so that was kind of the next component. We can move the manufacturing sites. Obviously, we've committed to RE100. We could get that to electrification. But for us to go on a carbon neutrality announcement, we had an all-in commitment of, of electric vehicles. And both of those announcements kind of together allowed us, one, to accelerate again, then practically 12 months, accelerate the renewable energy goal from 2050 to 2040 globally. And we moved the U.S. to 2030 because we think there's a way the bulk of our electricity consumption is within U.S. footprint can move to 2030. And then in the recent announcement in ground carbon neutrality, we pulled that forward, our, our global commitment to 2035, which really aligns where on our efforts of electrification and what we got to do around zero emissions. And it does kind of go back to our, you think about it, RE100, we joined that in 2016. And then we, a few years later, announced our 000. They're on zero emissions. And for you know zero emissions to truly be kind of one of our driving goals, I said, it kind of goes back to simplicity. 000 is really the driving force. It's all the different components that have to happen around zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And the zero emissions sector, in order for that to truly happen, you had to have electrification, which has been something we've been talking, you know, even in the industry perspective, how do we think about the heat side of it? And I know we've had some discussions before on even the renewable thermal side of the business. Well, utility sector is moving from an electricity standpoint, the transportation sector, you know, became the largest carbon emitter in order to get to zero emissions, it's it's moving towards electrification and working in, in many facets of the business in order to really make that happen. So it's, it's an exciting component of, it, I think, where we're heading, and it's ultimately a further commitment of, of us to continue that accelerated curve, moving things at a pace that this next decade is really going to be quite interesting, I think, in a lot of ways. It definitely does not have a dull moment on any given day. Yeah, I think you're right. And yeah, I, I mean, in thinking about it, it makes sense. You had to exit internal combustion engines before you can 
make a firm commitment to be carbon neutral. So those two announcements taking place at the same time and in the sequence that they did make make a world of sense. I mean, the other important component to all of that, too, is addressing climate change. I mean, we believe in climate change. Mary's been on record of saying, you know, we got to address climate change and, and GM's going to be leading in that cause. And so our renewable energy efforts is one component of that. But for us to really address climate change, the bulk of our carbon emissions are transitioning to electric vehicles. That's really the point of where we're going to make the ability to address climate change for future generations and society as a whole is going to an all electric future. Thanks. And that was really, I mean, that was a great high level take on where the company's headed in general. I'd now like to maybe narrow the focus of the conversation, Rob, to a topic that you're extremely passionate about, passionate about, and is really kind of your core duties at GM, and that relates to renewables. So I'd like to talk now about kind of your take on where renewable energy is headed over the next 12 to 18 months. And Maybe a good place to start is for you to give us an update on GM's plans to be powered by 100% renewable energy in the U.S. by 2035. Yeah, so we, we really came off a banner year 2020 in sourcing you know, renewables through really, in my mind, is a portfolio strategy. You know, one size fits all, one solution fits all is not the right way to go. So it's always, as I've always stressed, it's, it's got to be a portfolio solution, no different than how you invest potentially your own money. 2020, as I said, we've we signed two green tariffs, one with Detroit Edison, one with TVA. The Detroit Edison was huge. It got the, the remaining component of our Southeast Michigan electric load to 100% renewables. For us to find a solution in Michigan was huge, and finding local solutions has always been one of our, our strong commitments to the electricity space in general, because we want to address local emissions. But working with our utilities, about 20% of our global footprint is in Michigan. We've actually got solutions in the process or executed to do that. TVA, and then we signed more recently our our power purchase agreement with First Solar to get some more of our MISO footprint uh, within you know that organized market to 100% renewable. And looking at it also from a local content standpoint and circularity, I think some of the other things that corporations can think about this beyond local is also finding solutions that drive circularity. The panels that we sourced from First Solar have a circularity component of that. And I think that's an important part as we discuss things with our supply chain as we look at EVs. We need to be thinking about that as we look at, at renewables. And so that's one of the bigger things that we've been putting focus on as well. As I look out the next 12 to 18 months, you know, it's going to be continuing that focus of finding the local solutions for some of our facilities that we currently have not met the RE100 commitment and continuing down that path. Coming off of a banner year like 2020, I mean, it was over one terawatt hour that we've sourced. In fact, REBA, just uh, the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, uh, just announced their top 10 sourcing list. And we were number six on the list in 2020, which I think is attributed to the leadership team supporting our renewable energy efforts as a company, which really allows us to think about some of the other announcements around carbon neutrality. I mean, these things build off of each other. And that's the exciting component as we really look at leveraging our scale. And it does come back to, as we joined RE100, as I look at the next 12 to, to 18 months, it really is around those four pillars. And I think we're going to continue to see that focus around energy efficiency, you know, as we drive efficiency into new facilities, as we build battery plants like the Altium plant in Lordstown, Ohio, as we think about how we're going to source solutions for those types of facilities from a renewable strategy standpoint. How do we think about where does battery storage fit into this? And it doesn't necessarily have to be a stationary battery. You got to start to think about how does electric vehicles fit into this broader picture, both from a rate design and from a model of how do you then think about aggregation of the broader context context of this. And then leveraging our policy and scale. You know, we've been actively engaged, I know, with our my federal, GM's federal team, but more broadly other companies as we think about how to organize markets, how do we work with the new administration on efforts of around clean energy? You know, how do we drive jobs, find local solutions in that space? And so really those kind of four pillars are areas we're going to continue to accelerate and put a lot of emphasis and focus on as we go forward within the next 12 to 18 months. And looking at solutions at technology can enable. I think that's the other thing as we think about this transformation is where does technology play into this, both from what your smartphone can do. I mean, you have a lot more of an ability now to see what your electric consumption within your homes are from smart meters that are being installed. Well, how do you then figure out ways to control our cost? And it's almost, it's part of that journey. I mean, all of us have driven down the road in our internal combustion engines and saw, oh, gas is five cents a gallon cheaper there. So on my way back, I'm going to stop at that gas station. That's just that mindset. So how do you then change that mindset? around renewables, decarbonization, and ultimately electrification as a whole. Exciting times. There's going to be a lot more announcements coming out, you know, obviously. But I think biggest other trend you're going to, I think, see is more and more companies looking at accelerating their goals, seeing that there's a huge opportunity to really drive that at scale that really will have an impact uh, to the environment and ultimately to the grid. 
it's really been fascinating to see how COVID really has not had a negative impact on commitments and what companies are, are, are doing. GM's not alone in accelerating a commitment. So it's really gratifying to see that, that wave of companies really being committed to a zero carbon future accelerating. One of the things, you know, we talked about for the first time, Rob, a couple of years ago, and, and it sounds like you're doing more near-term work on this topic is kind of helping green the energy used by your supply chain. Can you give us an update on, on kind of what's going on with your supply chain initiative to, to help reduce emissions generated by your supply chain, hence GM's scope three emissions? Yeah, so our, just to add a little bit of clarity around this as well. So our, our carbon neutral announcement is for our operations and our product, which we have much more control and the ability to do. It did not include the supply chain, but it doesn't mean we're not doing anything in the supply chain. I mean, I think it's a lot of it has kind of come both ways from a scaling perspective. You've got quite a bit of our suppliers that are looking at joining RE100 or sourcing renewables at a competitive rates and, you know, looking to GM from a leadership perspective and engaging us through various efforts in our supply chain organization. We've held energy workshops with a large number of our suppliers and, and leveraging ways that continue to drive down costs that ultimately is a win-win solution. But I think more importantly is it kind of gets back to our earlier conversation. If you're not on the bandwagon, you're going to be one of the ones that's going to be left off the whole wave of moving towards aggressive sustainability targets. And so you're seeing us engage with our supply chain, no different than the supply chain wanting to engage with us to say, how do we do this together in ways that move the markets? And that really is, I think we're beyond that point of wanting to set targets. We're at that point of how fast can we get these targets done and how quickly can we accelerate some of the goals that we're doing based on what the industry is doing and seeing what other movers and shakers are really doing when you think of this space. And so I think our engagement on the supply chain is not direct saying you're going to go out and reduce your carbon footprint by X and you're going to achieve the amount of renewables percents that are of 100%. It's kind of looking at this in a portfolio solution to say, hey, look, we need you in that same room with us. If we're talking to a utility looking for a green tariff solution or some other technology solution that advances decarbonization of the grid, those two together or four or 10 or 20 or 30 suppliers have the ability to move the decarbonization of the grid in a much more, in a grander fashion than if it was just GM sitting with the utilities. And so I think that's the part kind of goes back to the, the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance and other trade organizations that are looking at this space is scale really is starting to drive numbers. You know, it's waking up the regulators, it's waking up legislators, it's waking up utilities in a fashion that, hey, we need to move faster at paces that you wouldn't have seen three to four years ago. So I think our engagement on the supply chain side of it is, I wouldn't say as direct, but I think has as much implications because of where the industry is going that we can join hands together and do that. I will allude to the fact that there's some cool stuff coming out. So I can't unfortunately talk about that yet. It doesn't necessarily put the hand, you know, hey, you're going to do this, but it's it's something that uniquely allowed GM to continue down that spearheading path of and trailblazing path of really trying to move the industry in a way that looks at this in a lot of ways, the ways I like to look at this in a very holistic lens. I mean, we've got to do this together. It kind of goes back to the GMs all in. This is where we're heading. And we need to make sure we're finding solutions that drive towards that in a competitive manner. And that's more to come. We look forward to covering and reporting on those developments as they emerge. You've long been a proponent of the need for large customers like GM to partner with utilities to make things happen. What's your take on the role that utilities need to play in order for you to be able to accomplish your goals on the time frame in which you want to accomplish them? The end is, is really to decarbonize the grid. So I think you're starting to see a lot of utilities set bold goals, but they're still somewhat out there. And so I do think our continuing working with utilities, you know, setting a target to be all electric by 2035 is a pretty big stake in the ground to say this is where we're heading to. So we're going to have to really transition the grid a lot faster than I think utilities were maybe potentially anticipating. But working together, if you look at what we did in the last 10 years to fast forward to today, there were no green tariffs. It was all about renewable portfolio standards, utilities going out and sourcing renewables, maybe not at the most competitive price even when you think about how they looked at their return on, on investment and things. And so it's kind of changing that mindset I think has enabled them to start to think about things in a much more nimble manner as they look at decarbonization and how it actually works to their advantage. Because in the past, they used to build these big decentralized plants, 
some of them would be sitting there based on what the demand of the day was. And you're seeing a lot more utilities starting to talk about ways and how do you optimize and then operate within that bandwidth. So how do you address the peaks? How do you address the troughs and optimate, which is the most optimal and efficient way within that typical call it band that would, that optimizes their operations, but optimizes the transmission operations. And so electric vehicles are going to be an enabler to that battery storage fuel cells, electrolyzers, green hydrogen. I think a lot of these things are really starting to get a lot more discussion. You're seeing a lot of investments coming even in the hydrogen space, which is uniquely could position as a longer term strategy towards removing you know, natural gas fired peaking plants. I mean, you really need to solve for short, mid and long duration solutions. And the neat thing is, is you're now starting to find those solutions becoming more of a mainstream discussion. The short, we're obviously in, in, investing in, in wind and solar, and that'll continue and have to accelerate. But the mid is where do electric vehicles play into that space and storage and or stationary storage. And then ultimately, you know, how do we think where does green hydrogen and some of the other components, uh, zero carbon grid fit into getting it from a long duration where you've got multiple days where the sun may not shine or the wind doesn't blow. So we're finding all of those technology solutions. I think that's where the, the utility can really play a big part of that and enabling both rate design that enables customers to maximize the benefit to them to electrify, which ultimately then drives additional revenue to the utilities. And so it's maximizing the revenue streams with electrification and ultimately driving decarbonization and doing so. And so they play a key part of really changing the consumer's mindset about how and when they consume electrons, whether it's through direct rate rate design or if it's through indirect efforts that they've worked with us in various avenues, whether it's at our manufacturing sites or at our employees that, you know, as we do hold energy conferences and, and energy webinars about what they can do from a, a consumer standpoint. So utilities will play a big part of it, but there's still some work to do and we're going to continue to obviously accelerate at paces. So I can't give them all credit. There's still some, I think they still need to move a little bit faster, but based on where they've been for the last few years, they're definitely moving there. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, that's very fair. And you're being extremely diplomatic in, in your positioning of things. <laughs> I don't have to be so diplomatic. So yeah. I think that utilities by and large resisted things, right? They wanted to maintain the status quo and it was extremely adversarial utilities resistant of the unique needs large customers were expressing. To my way of thinking, and I think it was roughly five years ago, when NGM wrote that $87 million check to NV Energy to sever their ties with NV Energy, that in Vegas, I mean, that got the utility industry's attention. I think today, you've got the early adopters that are really moving forward and putting significant plans in place. But what we need is that big bubble in the middle of the utility industry to come on board. And we're obviously advocating that. And we think that utilities can't move fast enough to try to help make things happen. But we are encouraged by the, the progress. Rob, you've mentioned at least three times about how the grid has to change during this conversation. What's your take on what's needed in grid modernization to, to be able to support this growth and this transition? I think it kind of comes back to some of the support around the organized markets. I mean, we really got to start to drive markets. That drives competitiveness. You know, that ultimately drives the value to the customer and enables the decarbonization, to, I think, to accelerate because that finds the solutions that customers want in a competitive way. So we're a big proponent of how you look at and how organized markets operate. And I do think, you know, we need to continue to drive the technology that gives the customer a lot more control. Utilities might not like that, but when you're behind the wall of your own meter, there's a lot of things you can now do as a customer level that can and incentivize you to reduce cost. Or as we think about electrification, how to, to vehicle to home, vehicle to grid, all of that play into the broader sector of reducing potentially the need for additional transmission in some cases or adding transmission in other cases, and then really interlinking some of that. You know, there's a lot of discussion around the transmission system itself. A lot has to invest into that, which is true. I mean, the original transmission system back in the day was a modern marvel hasn't had a lot of investment. We really need to kind of put some money into that to really invest and move this forward in a way that actually will drive economic investment in the fact that you're going to be building out, but you're also going to drive it in a way that drives down the cost for the customer. And so optimizing that in a way that we can do that in a much more succinct manner than we could back in the day. It was build it, build it for large, build it to go. And when we need it, it's there. Now it's how do we then optimize 
that transmission system in a way that benefits a customer. And there's a lot of technology that's enabling this to be done, you know, dynamic load rating, other things, you know, how do we optimize around the efficiency of the transmission system? How do we optimize between different markets? How do we optimize around large energy users? How do we optimize around residential customers? And as we move towards electrification, you have the ability, if done proper, to really control a lot of the ways that that is done. And so I think technology will be a big driving factor, but the organized markets in a lot of ways, I do need to think I need to expand. It's interesting to see some of the different discussions on the Western and the Western part of the U.S. and the Southeast start to think about that. And I partially that's, I think a lot of ways due to the storage and other things are factoring into it. And it's looking at it in a way that says, how do I, how do I actually reduce the cost for the customers? And getting back to earlier conversation, if they do electrify, that's increased revenue. So how do I, how do I look at this in a way that's completely different than probably the mindset for the last 20 years, which has been kind of flat to declining, you know, electric revenues to saying, hey, electrification is actually going to increase revenues. So in doing that, how do I cross that point in a way that makes economic sense from a customer perspective? And I think one other thing that we bring from a corporation standpoint is looking at the lens of internal rate of returns that may not be at the level that you needed you were in the past because A, the cost of capital has gone down if you look at interest rates, but also how do you then translate that in a way that drives value to the residential or commercial or industrial customer like we We could do a whole separate episode <laughs> on grid modernization and what's going to be needed oh, because yeah. you're absolutely right. I mean, the grid was a modern marvel when it was originally implemented and it was implemented as a one-way transmission source and the grid of the future has to be two-way and how we get from one-way to two-way is going to be driven by technology and, and it's going to be fascinating to see what that, what that process looks like. And if we do it right, a lot of that... T- technology will be developed within the United States and deployed within the United States. You can't really import electrons across the oceans. So, I mean, how do we, how we think about this can be really, you know, a unique way of, of driving investment, which is, I think, what a lot of folks are talking about. How do we drive local investment, especially as we try to look at recovery from the pandemic? This is a great way to do it and it benefits the customer. I mean, this kind of go back. Everybody wanted electricity back in the day. Now it's how do I optimize that electricity in a way that benefits society, and which is the part that we really need to, to put focus on. Yeah. And this probably would be a great place for the new administration to focus some infrastructure dollars to help support managing and executing that, that transition. Rob, we've talked a lot about GM and a broader take on where your company's headed. We've talked about what's happening with renewables and and your expanded commitment and accelerated commitment and all the interesting things that you're doing there. I'd now like to move on and really kind of talk about you and, and your personal journey. We've known one another for quite a few years. We celebrated our fifth anniversary on February 19th and I think you came on our advisory board probably a year into our existence. So I'd like to give you a chance to talk about your career. Tell us about your overall career background and what led you to to start a career in the energy industry. Yeah, great, great discussion point. I love talking about energy, literally, no pun intended. I have a lot of energy in this space and a lot of passion, but I've been GM almost approaching 21 years. You know, it has been all the energy sector. I've seen a whole different parts of our business, whether it's operating large powerhouses, which I found to be very interesting, but it puts a whole new perspective when you're you're generating hundreds of thousands of pounds per hour steam, you know, thousands of cubic feet per minute of compressed air and all that goes into doing that, running some of the largest motors. I mean, these are 3,500 horsepower motors generate compressed air. I mean, so career, you know, was around that. And then it became, how do we then optimize a lot of those operations to moving into more of a contracting you know, role of looking at how do we source a lot of these activities, which is really, really where my passion has taken off. And in a lot of ways, allowed us to grow the renewable energy vision for this company on the auspice of really looking at this through that type of lens. And a lot of ways I like to say that's been where my passion is. And I've been able to carry that passion forward within working at General Motors. But I will say a lot of the drive towards addressing climate change and addressing renewables actually occurred back from second grade because I was concerned back in my early childhood years, which is now considered some time back because obviously second grade is many, many moons ago in a lot of ways. But I was concerned about the impacts of acid rain on, on maple syrup production. You know, I was a big fan of maple syrup on my pancakes and waffles and all that stuff. And that's really what got me initiated into this whole kind of looking at the power sector and how are they going to address acid rain so that the maple trees continue to produce maple syrup. That kicked off everything, really. I mean, second grade, fast forward all the way through my college careers and then into my career in, in the energy space, 
and my passion continuing to drive, how do we reduce ultimately to be in a company that actually has a zero emissions goal to you know, reduce emissions to zero? I mean, it's phenomenal. So that's kind of been my career path as I look at this from the lens of a, of a second grader and concerns around maple syrup to how can I move a large company like GM in a way that drives us towards our goals, towards zero emissions, and seeing really leadership provide a lot of that support. So it's been, it's been a great 20, 21 years, you know, going on in the company. And I look forward, I, I really look forward to this next decade. I mean, this is going to be such a phenomenal, you want to talk pace of change. There's going to be nothing dull in the energy sector. I can tell you that right now. And now I can see the transportation sector aligned with the utility and sector. It's just it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be great to see how the second half of my career really kicks in when you look at the next, call it 10 to 20 years. Yeah, it's exciting. Maple syrup. Wow, that's interesting. See, even I learned something on this on this episode. Now, you've got an engineering degree from Purdue, right? Yep. And are you still involved with Purdue at all? Or are you still doing any teaching or volunteer work there or helping them with their curriculum? Yeah, so I uh, do have a bachelor's and master's degree in civil engineering from Purdue University. I am on their environmental and ecology engineering advisory council, you know, looking at how that school can actually grow. Because if you realize you said environmental ecology engineering, he has a civil engineering background. Well, in civil engineering, there's other components. You know, I had an environmental strong area of, in civil engineering. And so there's now a subsector school that I'm kind of engaged in that is relatively new within the field, but I'm engaged with Purdue as we think about how that has an impact and we want to ultimately grow the number of students that are in this space, which is actually very important when you think about all aspects of environmental engineering and what that can really encompass, whether it's wastewater treatment plant design to addressing ecological concerns, the various different parts of the world to environmental engineers at plants. Yeah, so I am very engaged, very much engaged, you know, with Purdue, maybe with luck, maybe one of my kids might actually go there. I don't know. They've they've got to take some a number of tours at Purdue because I have, ironically, one of our meeting days was is take your kid to work day. And so they've driven, gone down to Purdue with me. So my older two have got to be able to do that. Got to meet Jeff Brown there, the football coach, and got to take some now that they're old enough, their own self tours and things. So we'll see how that impacts their potential desire to go to to Purdue in the future. Whether that happens or not, we'll see. Yeah. Well, listen, I definitely wanted to give you an opportunity to get the plug in for the Boilermakers. We can check that box. So engineering, kind of career GM, and you've been involved with renewable energy at GM kind of from, from day one. So it's got to be really gratifying for you to say you've you've been a part of kind of what's happened. And tell us about Throughout your career, what are, what are some of the things you're most proud of in terms of specific accomplishments? Yeah, really, I'm going to kind of hone in on two. It was getting GM to actually set a renewable energy goal back in 2010-11 time period for 2020, which at the time, very few companies had set renewable targets. And what kind of goal does that really mean? You know, it was even before RE100. And so it was setting, you know, kind of a megawatt target. At that point in time, it was 125 megawatts. Of promoting or sourcing directly, you know, renewables, which in 2010, 2011 seemed like a lot because it was like, you know, how are we going to do this? Most of our efforts at that point in time have been on-site solar projects, one megawatt, two megawatts. And so you start to think about how many of those do I have to do in order to actually get to 125 megawatts? But then the realization was, is we need to start to source offsite. And that's where I think a lot of companies really started to put a lot of emphasis. And I'd say that the, the proud point for me was when we did get approval in 2016 to, to join RE100 and, and commit to get our company to be 100% renewable energy. And in a lot of ways, that was probably one of our boldest goals kind of to date as a company that was external and to get leadership support to, to do that with this, the, the view of, hey, we need to start to take these longer term goals and views. Little did I know it was going to impact all the other goals and things that have come along in the announcements and the carbon neutrality announcement, which to me is the, probably the most exciting one from, a, I was a part of the RE100 one, I kind of led and, and went through the, the various different approval levels and, and questioning and, and rationale. And do we even want to set a goal to setting that goal in a lot of ways, I think led a good foundation to us to kind of continue down that path of a lot of the commitments and things that we're doing today. And aligning the RE100 to zero emissions to ultimately the carbon neutrality goal is, I would say, probably the, one of the most exciting points, you know, of my career to see the company do this. Because I've always had passion as it kind of goes back to the earlier conversation to, to get to zero emissions and now to be kind of on the ground and working our way up to 
to, to truly drive in a company that has a focus on zero emissions and accelerating is, is exciting. So to me, really, you know, those would be kind of the, the key parts. I will say operating a powerhouse is kind of fun in a lot of ways because it gave me an experience that is unique in a lot of fashion. I mean, who gets to operate as a set utility manager? I had a crew of 20 employees, few salaried and mostly hourly employees, which was a great experience because in a lot of ways it did open me up to how do you work with within the various team members within GM and our union partners. And I, you know, I learned a lot from that and walking in as a young engineer for some of those that could have been my, my dad or my mom and kind of taking that approach. I'm still really good friends with some of them. They're all primarily retired, but I, I'm still really good friends with them to have that appreciation. You know, I learned a lot from them. I didn't walk in saying, Hey, I'm, I'm going to change everything. I'm the new kid on the block. I'm going to do this. And I walked in and kind of with that open you know, mindset of what do we need to do to ensure that, A, we're always providing reliable operations to the plant. And so I learned a lot. And I will say from the hourly employees in doing that. So it was probably one of the, it was probably one of the better parts of my career when you think about how I really incorporated the ability to socialize and communicate within the framework of a company the size of GM, but looking at it at the lens of both from a salaried and hourly kind of perspective. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I would have liked to have been involved in some of those first meetings. Here's a wet behind the ears, greenhorn kid with an engineering degree going to tell the union guys how to run the powerhouse. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you did that well. And that was my mentality. But I think when you go into it with that mindset, knowing that you got to earn their respect as well, and you got to figure out a way to garner transition that has to happen that kind of mutual respect in a lot of ways grew my career to be able to kind of address the similar mindset and a lot of things that we do both internally and externally. I mean, those types of communications, you got to have that wide open mindset when it comes to that. So, yeah, you know, related to that, because that had to be a a challenge. What would you characterize as, as some of the biggest challenges that you've kind of faced and overcome in in your career? I think some of the, the biggest challenges, well, one was literally working with team members and coming into the company, you know, at that point in time, I was probably one of the youngest ones in there. I mean, GM has now transitioned in quite a few young engineers and and from mindset. So I walked in kind of into a company that wasn't hiring a lot. So, and it was, you know, kind of more of a traditional mindset to where you fast forward now when you think about, you know, diversity, society, leadership perspective, open door process, I think has been a, seeing the company transform, I think is and being part of that from kind of the ground up, even though it was renewables, but I think it's been interesting to see that transition as well and, and to participate that. Obviously, some of the, the more challenging times was back in, you know, called those time periods. Financially, the company wasn't nearly on the best footing as it was. In fact, we went through bankruptcy and I was there for that. And the challenges of how do we address the needs of the company to keep it operating with reduced to zero cash flow at various times, not new all to the company either. And so it's, you know, those were probably some of the more challenging parts of the career. And then coming out of that, how do we address things from a, you know, really a completely different type of company? I mean, we literally, literally did. I mean, we, <laughs> through that process, I mean, it's great to see where we've excelled to today, but that does present, you know, it's been an interesting career when you think of the different challenges that all of that has happened. Uh, yeah. So something I want to zero in on a little bit, because it's really fascinating. I mean, I could make the argument that your ability to get to get the company to make the commitment for RE100 in 2016 is what led to the announcements in January. So let's turn the clock back to 2016. Kind of what was the trickiest part of getting the company to commit to that RE100 goal? How did you how did you get that done? Well, really, it's committing to a long-term target. I mean, if you think about it, most companies up until then, including GM, were setting targets that were out to 10 years, and that seemed like a lot. So here you are coming up with a, a bold goal to transition the entire electricity consumption of the company on a global basis, with their, with their not even solutions in some countries to even count renewables, to say, hey, we're going to commit to this. And so I think that was one of the biggest challenges. And my first approach of going down that path in 2016 actually was a strike. I mean, it was, hey, why are you, you know, this is not, maybe we shouldn't set a goal like this, or maybe we shouldn't even put a date on it. And there were some of the challenging questions. And go back to the kind of almost was go back to the drawing board and think about this. And, and that was kind of a mind shift because it was like, hmm, well, that was really not the end. I thought based on the fact that we had already excelled and beat our 2020 goal of sourcing or promoting the use of 125 megawatts. This was just a kind of a natural knowing that 60 some companies had already had signed up to RE100. But that did kind of make me think about how do we better 
package this in a way that drives the portfolio solution, not the lens of, hey, we're going to just source renewables. And that's really where the four pillar strategy came into kind of <laughs> invented, if you want to say, because that was going back to then leadership and saying, well, it's not just committing to 100% renewables. It's committing to continue to fund energy efficiency efforts. It's committing to source renewables where we can't obviously drive to zero because we're going to still produce vehicles, but sourcing renewables in a number of ways. It's not just power purchase agreements. It's green tariffs and working with our utilities. And oh, by the way, I do think we've got two utilities that are looking at actually doing a green tariff now that haven't been publicly announced. And here's the conversations that we're having and, and highlighting that, knowing that the utilities were going to become a key part of, of transitioning that. And it was leveraging energy storage. We were starting to make moves in the, yeah, obviously, in the electric vehicle market. How does storage fit into that? How does that factor into the broader efforts? And then our policy and scale. I said, we've always leveraged the policy and scale side of this business to be able to make change happen. And this was kind of precursor to REBA, but there are already, you know, the loose-knit coalitions of the various NGOs that were looking at this space and driving scale. And so I said, if we continue to do that, we have a path to getting to 100% renewables, even if it means some things have to be still yet invented. And so... That was kind of the mind shift that leadership then said, hey, you got it. You're right. It is a challenge, but we do want to be a bold leading company in this sector and space. And you're right. At any given point in time over, because that point in time was a 2050 goal, we can move around this four pillar strategy and fund more in this. Maybe we don't want to sign into additional renewables. We want to fund additional energy efficiency efforts to continue to drive the denominator. So that kind of, in my mind, was... One of the more challenging ones, but it also opened up the ability for the company, I think, and leadership to look at this. It isn't all in one bucket. It's it's a multiple number of ways to do it. And setting bold goals are where companies need to be going if we're going to truly do a shift in the way we think about doing business. And so fast forward to today, you know, we've got where these, I, I do want to think that that kind of had leadership's mindset to think about bold goals. But the fact that 2016, there was a willingness already on their part to think about that meant the mind shift had already started to occur within the leadership to support these types of efforts. Boy, what a great story. So you had some renewable success under your belt. You think it's a layup to get the company to commit to RE100. You make the pitch, you basically get kicked out of the room <laughs> and you you decide to reload entirely, yep. entirely change the way it's positioned. You get the sale made. Well, I felt it was important to give you an opportunity to tell that story, Rob, because there are a lot of people that are going to be listening to this podcast that are where you were in 2016. Yep. They are trying to get that first commitment made. And for our listeners that are having a hard time and they feel like they're banging against the wall, I think the message is stick to it. Figure out a way to get a message together that that resonates. So, Rob, who, who's had the biggest impact on your career and who do you admire most uh, professionally? I would say from impact on career perspective, there was one gentleman back at my Lordstown days, uh, and he's still a good friend of mine, Eric Mendel, but we we're actually building a new powerhouse and a paint shop operation. And, you know, I, he and I kind of butted heads on a few things and he pulled me aside as a young engineer and he said, you know, if you would have said that a little bit differently, it would have come across a lot more positively and you would have gotten a lot more accomplished within this meeting and framework. And he and I kind of struck a chord and became really good friends as a result of that. I think changed a lot of my views of how I can discuss things within the leadership framework. And then my my boss, when I moved back from the Lordstown operation, Kamish Gupta at that point in time, you know, smart engineer and really took me under the wing to kind of provide what I would say the portfolio view and kind of the high, taking it start to bring it down to where it's manageable and then start to bring it down to where you can articulate it to leadership. And so I learned a lot coming from really those two gentlemen, you know, in the organization from within GM, but I learned a lot at Purdue as well. I had some great professors that yeah, I maximized my ability to, to talk to professors, to understand challenging questions and challenging problems and getting them to provide a lot of good guidance, which is another reason why, you know, I was a co-op. So I ended up actually co-oping and staying in my undergrad for five years. So I co-opted General Electric for five terms. And then I had industry experience and through that, I was able to determine it made sense at that point in time to really go on and get my master's degree, knowing that the great professors that I worked with at the university as well. So I will say that was another kind of career path as I looked at my broader career as a whole, as I wanted to make the impact that I'm ultimately making today. Yeah. Well, speaking of impact, you've already had a tremendous impact, obviously, on the company. And you referenced kind of you're at the midpoint in your career. You're now looking at the second half of your career. What impact at the end of the day would you like to feel like you've had not only on GM, but on the industry? 
Well, really is driving now that I've got it just recently announced towards the carbon neutral goal. I mean, the second half of my career really does take me to when we have to be carbon neutral and we've got to be at zero emissions towards 2035. So to me, you know, that is where we're heading. And that's where I'm excited to lead this company in that kind of trajectory and lead the team that works with me to really make that happen. And ultimately think about this from a business perspective that enables us to look at the lens of the electron versus the molecule and the gallon of gasoline. So it's changing that mind shift that I'm excited to really see the second half of my career to get towards and then hopefully retire out GMB and a carbon neutral company. And then I can actually go back to my maple syrup days and think about second grade and say, look what I did. I actually accomplished an item that I was concerned about in second grade and got ultimately towards zero emissions, which means there's no fossil generation at that point in time. So acid rain should be a, a thing of the past that people will talk about at that point. Oh my God, what a great way to tie the whole conversation together. I will say that kind of 20 years from now, if, if you're in that, you know, in that position or 19 years from now where kind of it would have started in 2016 with that initial commitment to go RE100, fast forward to 2040 when you achieve, or sooner when you achieve yep. carbon neutrality as a company, that'll be, that will be very, very cool. I'm not sure I'm going to be around to congratulate you, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I will add you accomplishing that goal to my list of prayers. You're a really special guy. I feel so privileged to have you as a member of our advisory board and consider you a friend. And I can't thank you enough for joining me today for this, for this conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me, John. I always appreciate having a great conversation with you. Uh, well, thank you. To our listeners, thanks for engaging with our content and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn about how you can become a part of the next edition of our virtual innovation summit, which is taking place March 22nd to the 25th, please visit our website, smartenergydecisions.com. We're excited about sharing conversations with leaders of the energy industry in this podcast, on our website, and at our future events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.